Hello and welcome to Gilead. My name is Soren Honshire and thank you so much for joining us. This past Sunday was December 10th, 2023. Rebecca Anderson gave a great sermon per usual, fitting into our theme of bright and wild. We are talking about the wilderness of God and the wild plans that he may has, the wild love that he has for us. There's much to be said and much to be said about, and like Casey Musgrave said, love is a wild thing. So listen now. The garden that I grew during grad school was so far my lifetime best. I inherited access to a large sunny plot where nobody had grown anything for a few years. So the soil had been fallow, there was nothing taxing it, not much being taken out of it. It was just resting and replenishing until I came along. So I put in exactly what I wanted to eat and plants grew in tidy, lush little rows. I have to tell you that many people commented on what a great gardener I am when they saw this garden. And I told them the truth. All I had done was buy a few $1.79 seed packets, a few tomato seedlings, and put them in straightish lines. I mean, it looks like gangbusters if you do that much. Because among other things, I also have enough knowledge to recognize a carrot germinating when I see one. And, and between that and those lines, it's easy to weed out what doesn't belong, anything outside the lines, anything that's noticeably different, even if it was just kale sprouting in the wrong place. A friend who had grown up on a farm laughed at herself one day. She was standing in these rows and she said, all those years on a farm and I didn't stop to think about the seeds. She held up a little tiny one. This turns into food, she said. A miracle, we agreed. All we do is like next to nothing. Drop it in the ground and the results when everything else it needs happens, like it did in that garden. Huge bunches of fresh food. Bags loaded not just with sprigs of basil, but armfuls. The results, I mean, it looked to some people like I was a master gardener. The most claustrophobic time of my life, the most extended claustrophobic time in my life was when I was 23, 24, living alone in a basement studio apartment. And I've talked about it before, I know. This was claustrophobia beyond the general post-college slump that I believe strongly in warning teenagers that I, when I meet them about it, like kids who are too young to receive the news, but I don't want to leave them uninformed. The claustrophobia that I experienced included all of that all of that being the reality that after all those years of school and all that structure, instead of feeling free, I felt bored. The reality that after all that community, I'd feel lonely. The reality that after all those deadlines and assignments freed of them, I'd feel purposeless. I think that's just the regular 20-something stuff. On top of that, I was grieving the family scale catastrophe that I still talk about often because it was one that formed me at a formative time. So I'll. I'll tell you again, if I have in fact told you before, because maybe it'll sound familiar to you for your own reasons. When I was in that apartment, I was at a time when I felt so cut off from the world and from myself. It was the first time I'd ever lived alone. I had very little money and no money that you could call discretionary. I had no friends locally. I had loads of quiet and stillness. 
I didn't think I could do anything. I couldn't read a book. I wouldn't be able to make sense of what was on the page. I couldn't bake a loaf of bread because I wouldn't be able to follow the recipe. I couldn't sew something because I wouldn't be able to translate the instructions right. So in the evenings, I sat in my armchair and I did nothing. When I made it to work with a lunch in hand, I felt like I'd accomplished a lot for the day. One autumn in that apartment, probably not the first one, because I was still too disordered in my grief, maybe the second one, I had the urge to make an apple pie, but I couldn't justify spending money on apples, uh, food I didn't really need, and quantities I definitely didn't need, nobody to share it with. It was a luxury of an idea that I couldn't act on, so instead, I went out for a walk, and I thought to myself, unrealistically, if I find apples, I will make a pie. <laughs> Which was deeply unrealistic. Like, there was a dairy farm nearby, yes, I could hear cows from there, but this was a development, not an orchard. Yards were full of small decorative shrubs, not apple trees. But when I got out onto the main road, and I started to, to climb up the little hill that ran toward the south, I saw in the gutter an apple. <laughs> I like left it there and kept walking up this little hill where I found another apple. And then up ahead, I saw a full-grown apple tree leaning out from someone's yard out over the street full of ripe apples and the ground was covered with them. Now that's a miracle. Because if you plant kale, most of the time, what you get is kale. Ditto basil, ditto carrots. Conditions being mostly right, that's just what you expect. But here is this apple tree. Unexpected. I peered at the house with the tree in the yard. I considered the ethics, and I decided that the apples already on the ground and in the street were fair game. So I filled up the front of my shirt, and I headed home. I know effectively nothing about the politics, history, and policies of Israel and Palestine. I mean, I know about the Nakba, the catastrophe, the forced removal and murder of Arabs from the land. I know about the Holocaust, the murder of millions of Jews and others. I know very broadly about the creation of the state of Israel. I know broadly about the encroachment of illegal Israeli settlements and the shrinking Palestinian areas and the wall that snakes around the West Bank. I know the names Hamas and the IDF, although I googled IDF today to confirm that it's the Israel Defense Forces, not the Israeli Defense Force or anything else that I thought it might be. And I know broadly what each one of those is. I know very broadly that our country has supported Israel with money, policy, and weapons, and more for decades, largely without question. I know very broadly about the hearings in Congress this past week debating what constitutes free speech and what constitutes hate speech on college campuses. I know about and am alert to experiences of anti-Semitism and racism against Arabs. I know about murders of both Palestinian and Jewish individuals in this country. I know about the murders and assaults on Israel on October 7th. I have read personal accounts of that terror. I have seen footage. I know about the war in, on Gaza, and the numbers of the murdered and numbers of murdered children, and the images and the ongoing, right now, humanitarian crisis, which phrase means that people are dying because other people are preventing them from access to basic human rights. As I said, and I am not being sarcastic, I know effectively nothing. I have no opinion more informed than that I am a pacifist.
that I do not believe in killing any person for any purpose, for any reason, in any circumstance. And I know too that others' lives and experiences have led them to different deeply held beliefs. All of which I say in order to try and tell you in some authentic way where I'm honest both about my ignorance and my commitments, that when I come to this week of Advent and a service about feeling hemmed in, I think of the people in Gaza and in the West Bank where the walls are closing in over decades. I think of how many people describe those folks living in the largest open air prison in the world. I think of the map I saw of Gaza overlaid on a map of Chicago, which turned out not to be a completely accurate map, but it was evocative enough to make me look it up. So Chicago's 2.6-ish million people live in about 230 square miles. Gaza's 2.3-ish million people live in 60% of that. They used to, less now. And I think about how easy it is in a garden, in a raised bed, to tell what belongs, how easy it is to weed out anything that's noticeably different, how clear the lines of demarcation are when there is only what I put there and bare ground. Everybody misremembers Isaiah 11. You probably don't even think you remember it all, but I'll start and then you finish, okay? The lion will lie down with Wrong! Um, Isaiah 11 is a sort of a scorched earth moment in history, an almost scorched earth moment. The Israelite king had made a bad deal with some bad guys, Assyria, and now Assyria was just running amok, sort of with God's blessing, or maybe let's just call it the natural result of the Israelites' actions. But just before the Assyrians ran all the way amok, the prophet Isaiah preached, God was going to roll up and cut them down. Isaiah says the tallest trees felled, the metaphorical Assyrian thickets felled by the axe of God. And then Isaiah gets to the good bits. Here's good bit number one. A shoot shall come out from the stock of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of its roots. All those tree stumps, all that scorched earth, the people recovering from the Assyrians, the Assyrians licking their wounds and counting the rings because those trees were old. The stock, the roots of Jesse. Well, Jesse's the name of King David's dad. King David, who was the best Israelite king, the one everyone hopes that someday might be given run for his money by another great ruler instead of a string of bozos like they've had. And here the prophet paints a picture from the devastation, a picture from a people cut off from each other cut off from themselves and their identity, cut off from God, a green shoot unfolding into the world, a little bright green spot against so much gray, a tendril growing up out of all that's been, a new ruler, a different one. Isaiah paints the picture. This bright spot, the spirit of God will rest on it a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, a spirit of knowledge and awe of God. The bright spot will treat the poor righteously and decide with equity for the meek and rule with faithfulness, giving David the best king a run for his money. But not non-contiguous with that tradition either. 
related. Good bit two, another picture. This one, the peaceable kingdom. The wolf shall live with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. They don't eat straw, they eat hay, but it's fine, it's the Bible. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. No lion lays with a lamb, except in a general way that they all lay down together in this kind of puppy pile. Everybody misremembers it. Some people remember that it's a lion and a lamb. Some people remember it and think that little child must be Jesus. Some people remember it and think, oh, it's Hezekiah who was coming into power at the time and for whom things look pretty good in terms of righteousness and faithfulness. Some people remember it about a coming Messiah who is not here yet. And almost everybody who remembers it at all thinks they are a lamb. They are a baby goat. They are a big-eyed calf. Everyone who pictures a baby in that image pictures their baby. And the wolf, the lion, the bear, the snake, they are tamed enemies whose jaws have loosened on us. The miracle is that the world is made safe for us. And that's true. Almost everybody has been prey at some point. Almost everybody has been vulnerable in a narrow place hemmed in for a time, claustrophobic. Maybe it's been a long time since you felt that way, or maybe that's where you see yourself in the picture tonight. In which case, maybe it doesn't sound that great. Like, oh good, you get to lay down and rest with the predator. Like, how long does it take to know that the wolf, the lion, the bear have changed for good? Isn't it pretty reckless to take your rest alongside them? It's also true that almost everyone has been the predator, interpersonally or as part of a system. Our country has built walls. Our country has our own maps of shrinking indigenous lands, squeezing, squeezing in. There are people who cannot trust us to rest among us. There are individuals who cannot relax when I am in the room. But God's hope for the thriving of all people is wild. And it grows outside of the walls we make, disappointing some of us, making some of us angry, creating fear in some of us, which the prophet also addresses, or, or God addresses in the prophet's mouth. Right after all those animals cuddling, God through Isaiah says, they will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of God as the waters cover the seas divine knowledge flooding the earth, unruly, splashing all over, rolling down the street in a gutter. I'm, I'm mixing metaphors. I filled my shirt with apples and headed home. And it was a miracle. But those apples were planted just as surely as any seeds in my garden. And not just planted either. Because while it's true that apples are native here, that they belong, that's just crab apples. You can't eat those. Eating apples were brought here, transplanted, and not only transplanted, because maybe you know, but you can't plant an apple seed and get an apple tree that grows apples like the one you ate. The way you say it is apples don't come true from seed. If you want another apple tree to make fruit like the one you ate, you have to take some of that first tree and graft it into the trunk of some other tree. 
Those apples in the gutter were sweet. Some hand grafted a new branch onto an old tree and made something come true that I just happened on. For me, a miracle. The work of God in the world does not happen where or how we expect, sometimes not how I want, sometimes contrary to my own beliefs. Sometimes we learn that we are the predators who need taming. Sometimes the work of God looks like something we've made happen with our hands, but the work of God in the world, by which I mean to say the love of God in the world, is out of our hands. It's wild and unruly and splashing all over the place and rolling down like mighty apples, like water, an ever-flowing stream. And it will grow outside of our plans and our lines and over and through our walls, eventually breaking them down and dropping them to the ground. God is the seed. God plants the seeds. God grows the love. God is not limited by our plans. And sometimes, often, God's wild, unbelievable image of what's possible thriving for all people with plenty of space requires our work to come true.